Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 84, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at the 17th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip, which, thankfully, is a slightly better story than the last couple from the dailies. Also, later in the episode, we will have the return of the spotlight feature, as I shine the spotlight on artist Don Commissaro. Commissaro is one of those creators where there doesn't seem to be much on him, but I did find a little bit of information and was a, was a bit surprised actually at what I found, so I will be sure to share that later. I also want to give a little bit of an addendum to my thoughts from last episode about the Man of Steel trailers. I've given more thought to the Comic-Con footage and what we saw in that, and that has lessened my concern that costumed, in-action Superman was going to be sparse in the movie. I'm guessing we're still going to see less, actually, than in, say, Superman the movie, but after giving the Comic-Con footage more consideration, I think we're going to actually get more than I initially thought. I am really looking forward to the movie at this point. I'm anxious to get a real, honest-to-gosh trailer. I have a feeling it's going to be a while, maybe not even until the end of the year or or possibly, you know, after the first of the year, because we're still a full 11 months from the movie's release. But I look forward to getting a real trailer and maybe seeing some of the footage of Superman and, and hopefully getting at least a vague idea of the basic story. Though if you saw the Comic-Con footage, I think you can suss out at least a very, very basic framework of, of the story they're going to be telling. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. I actually uh, thought more of that before I released last episode, but I'm lazy and I didn't want to re-record the episode. Um, it also seems that the Superman celebration for next year won't be the same weekend as the film release. As of when I'm recording this, the dates of the celebration are actually said to be the weekend prior to the film. So that's a little disappointing because I know a lot of people, myself included, were hoping to see the film with, at the celebration with friends. But the awesome part is, if you go to the celebration, you'll get home, you know, Sunday or Monday, depending on where you live, and you'll still be feeling the high of it until at least midweek, and then the movie hits the following weekend. So it'll be like two solid weeks of Superman excitement, which I'm really looking forward to it either way. So that's it for that. I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo, and then I'll be back and we can dig into the story. Do you enjoy time travel in general and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. 
can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. Like I said, this is the 17th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip, and it was comprised of strips 511 to 540. So, only 30 strips, a little shorter than the last couple, but that's okay because it's a little bit of a breather. Uh, We have this storyline, and then they launch into a huge 84-strip, three-month storyline next time. So, this storyline ran from September 2nd to October 5th, 1940, which puts it starting just a few days before the likely release of Superman number 7. So there was that, as well as Action Comics number 30. On the radio, Superman wrapped up his adventure with Professor Thorpe in the bathysphere and solved the mystery of the curse of Dead Man's Island, which ended just a day before this storyline did. The Sundays, meanwhile, were continuing with that ever-present story, uh, but we're inching closer to the end, and we'll be covering that in just two episodes. This story was written by Jerry Siegel, and the art was penciled by Wayne Boring and possibly inked by Don Comisaro, which is the same art team as the last couple of storylines. So, they've been on the strip for a good while at this point, and it's nice to see the consistency there, especially since they they really do seem to gel together and have produced some fairly dynamic art. And I don't know if you're looking at the story, but if, if you're looking at the story as we go along, you'll see that it's even better this time than I think it's ever been. And you know, Wayne Boring was really cranking out the art at this point. In addition to the dailies here, he had a hand in all four stories from Superman number 7, and is credited with pencils on that long-running Sunday strip that we'll be looking at. So that's pretty impressive. But anyway, our story has been titled The Hooded Saboteur, and begins as Metropolis officials discuss a series of mysterious accidents that have struck the city utilities. One of the city officials suggests contacting Clark Kent as he's been successful in solving such things in the past, and the others agree. And they only spend one panel on it, but in my mind, I I imagine this meeting going a lot like the one in Blazing Saddles. We must do something about this immediately! 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 Harumph! 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 I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Just the governor, harumph! Harumph! You watch your ass. We then cut to the Daily Planet, where Clark Kent is getting shot down after asking Lois Lane for a date. They go to see the editor, presumably George Taylor, since this strip was published before Superman number 7, but he's not named. Whoever it is, though... The editor introduces them to John Terrell, the Daily Planet's newest reporter, and assigns the three of them, much to Clark's chagrin, to cover the accidents at the city utilities. At just that moment, a huge fire engulfs the city's electric plant. A news flash comes into the paper, and our three reporters rush out to cover the story, with Terrell leading the way. When they arrive, they are blocked by the police from entering the building, and Terrell suggests they try to slip past the guard. Clark isn't thrilled with the idea, but Lois grabs the camera, and she and Terrell charge forward into the burning building. Slipping away into a nearby alley, 
Clark changes to Superman, hoping to keep an eye on them, you know, just in case there's trouble inside the burning building. Back inside the building, though, Lois and Terrell are getting photos of the blaze. A few minutes later, Lois notices Terrell has disappeared, and then she is suddenly grabbed from behind by a hooded figure. As Superman leaps towards the factory, Lois is at the hooded figure's mercy. Flames crackle and rafters creak as the hooded figure's hands tighten around her neck. Hearing Superman coming, the hooded figure leaves. Lois's unconscious body lies on the factory floor as flames inch closer. Superman enters on a high scaffold, and Lois revives just as the rafters start to fall. With breathtaking speed, Superman races downward to save the girl reporter, but as he nears her, he trips. Thankfully, by Monday, Superman has regained his balance and grabbed Lois and now races away from the Inferno. Lois thanks Superman for the, for the latest rescue and then hears a moaning from a nearby door. Opening it, they discover Terrell, who says he remembers getting hit on the back of the head and then waking up in the closet. With the flames moving ever closer, Superman grabs both Lois and Terrell and leaps away from the building, soon landing on top of another building nearby. Lois explains how a hooded figure attacked her, proving that these accidents were anything but. However, Superman replies that the only thing it proves is that it's a dangerous situation and that Lois should go home and make him a sandwich. Okay, he doesn't say to make him a sandwich, but he does say, in a rather rude and un-Superman-like manner, that it's a dangerous situation and she needs to stay away. Thankfully, Lois, being the Lois we all know and love, well, the Lois we all know anyway, rebuffs Superman while Terrell cheers her on, saying she knows there's a story and plans on tracking it down. Later, Terrell and Lois meet back up with Clark and survey the plant, only to find it has been completely decimated by the fire. As the police vow not to rest until they either find the culprit or get to the end of the story, Clark leaves to call the story into the paper. But the editor tells him that the city's water supply is suddenly dropping, and he should stop goofing around doing his job, and instead check out the new troubles. Knowing that this is a job for Superman, Clark rips open his shirt and makes a mighty leap into the sky. As he nears the water pumping station, he uses his x-ray vision to look inside and sees the workmen in a panic. As he drops into the factory, a worker explains that while all the machinery seems to be working fine, that the city water supply is dropping fast. They've also been looking for leaks, but have yet to find any. Superman grabs the man and leaps towards the dam and sees a flood of water spilling over, where normally it's just a trickle. Wanting a closer look, Superman leaves the worker atop the dam and dives down into the water, hoping to find the cause of the problem. Swimming through the terrific current, the Man of Steel finally reaches the intake pipes and sees that the water is flowing out of the pipes, not in. While Superman swims back topside, the man he left atop the dam tries to use our hero's absence in order to make a getaway. But Superman surfaces and grabs him, demanding to know where he can find the chief engineer. The man points the way, and soon Superman crashes through the wall of the engineer's office. Superman demands the engineer listen to him, which is odd since he should be asking questions at this point, not monologuing, but no matter. Mr. Chief Engineer, despite having no reasonable reason for doing so, isn't having any of this Nancy Boyd listening stuff, and attacks Superman with a giant wrench that he just happens to have nearby. Unfortunately for him, 
all that does is demonstrate that a wrench really isn't the best weapon to use against Superman. Unless it's a kryptonite wrench. Whatever kryptonite is. And Superman grabs the guy and threatens to serve him a five-course meal of knuckle sandwich unless he listens. He then explains about the pumps being reversed and even takes him to the intake pump, ripping the top off and showing him as proof. Superman tells the guy to reverse the pumps, but the engineer responds he can't because the crane used to lift the pumps from the concrete bases is damaged. One side, says Superman. This looks like another job for me. Exerting all of his tremendous strength, Superman lifts the pumps high overhead, spins, and drops the pumps back down. His job done, Superman leaps out the window and soars off as Lois, Terrell, and Sergeant Casey approach the pumping station. A short while later, Clark rejoins the trio, and Casey asks the chief engineer how the pumps got reversed. Tired of being hounded after one whole question, the engineer freaks out, admits he reversed them, and runs out of the pumping station. Screaming about how he failed his mission, he then leaps off the dam into the water. Terrell leaps in after him, but it's too late. The fall broke the engineer's neck, killing him. A short time later, possibly just leaving the guy's body floating in the city reservoir without telling anyone, Lois, Terrell, and Clark leave the plant. Lois swoons over Terrell's manly display of manliness, but Clark just changes the subject, saying he's hungry. As they enter a nearby restaurant, the manager runs up to them in a panic, saying that the gas stove won't light and the cook is unconscious on the kitchen floor. Which begs the question about why they're so worried about the gas stove not lighting if their cook is unconscious. But anyway, Lois bends over to sniff the gas nozzle, which defies all sanity. But anyway, Clark shoves her out of the way, his super senses having alerted him to the fact that the gas is in fact cyanide gas. After exiting the restaurant, Clark tells Terrell and Lois that he'll revive the cook and clear the gas from the room and meet them back at the planet. But once out of sight, he leaps into the air as Superman and soon arrives at the city gas works. Apparently just leaving the restaurant full of deadly gas and the cook there unconscious. Anyway, arriving at the plant and seeing the entire crew of the plant has also been knocked unconscious, Superman knows he has to act fast. With one punch, he knocks a hole in the wall to clear the room, and then dashes into an adjoining room where he finds rows of tanks filled with cyanide. As he shuts off the valves, Superman laments the lives that have already been lost, including, no doubt, the guy he just left at the restaurant, and then leaps off just as police arrive. Returning once more to the Daily Planet as Clark Kent, he tries to find Lois, but Taylor tells him she went home to rest. Being a crazy stock, I mean superhero, Clark tries to call but gets no answer. On a hunch, he switches back to Superman and follows Terrell to an abandoned building. His superhearing picks up Lois's voice from inside, demanding to be let go. Being totally awesome, Superman descends from the sky, crashes through the iron gate that surrounds the building, and proceeds to beat the ever-loving out of an entire gang of thugs. As bullets ricochet off his back, Superman unties the girl reporter and then turns once more to give his full attention to the thugs. Unfortunately, they try to run and are instantly killed when they try to exit an electrified door. A voice echoes from the room's intercom, ordering Superman to retreat or suffer the same fate. Retreat? That isn't in my vocabulary, says Superman, and then crashes through the electrified door as a shower of sparks and energy cascade around him. 
Hurtling into the next room, he finds a half-dozen hooded figures seated around a large table. One rises and throws a bomb at Superman, but our hero is unfazed as the bomb merely explodes on his chest. The force of the explosion does knock the bomb thrower out a nearby window, however. Superman leaps forward for the save, but is too late. Unmasking the now-dead man, Superman learns that the hooded figure is none other than... John Terrell. Leaping back into the room, Superman unmasks the other figures, only to find that they are wax dummies. Lois then enters with a man she says was also being held captive, and introduces him as the real John Terrell. Apparently the man we've been following all story had abducted the real Terrell and stolen his identity in order to conduct his nefarious schemes. For some reason. Later, back at the Daily Planet, Taylor is astounded to learn that the man responsible for the so-called accidents was actually in his employ. But Lois responds that he didn't succeed, thanks to Superman. The end. To get into the notes, uh, I actually I have less notes for this one. Um, Strip 511, I feel like Siegel's gotten into a rut with how he is kicking off the newspaper storylines. Two stories ago, we had a series of bank robberies. The last storyline started with a series of kidnappings, and now here we open with a series of accidents at the city utilities. I guess that's really a minor point. The stories themselves are different enough, but much like the complaint I had with the radio, I want more variation on how they begin. But, okay. So then we cut to the Daily Planet, where Clark is getting turned down, rather callously, might I add, by Lois for a date. And then, in the very next panel, they introduce John Terrell, or who we think is Terrell. We, we never actually learn his name, naturally, but since we don't meet the real Terrell until the final strip, I'm just going to keep calling this guy Terrell, which is easier to say than the hooded figure or, you know, the anonymous guy that's the, that's the villain. Anyway, I enjoyed that they introduced this guy, and while I really don't understand the necessity of him impersonating Terrell and getting a job at the planet, what I like is the kind of alternate romantic interest that they were toying with uh, with the character. Right from the onset, Lois is clearly smitten with this guy, and they even play Clark as a tad bit jealous and not really liking the guy too much. Uh, it's, it's really great. In fact, I wish they would have actually played with it more. As we get into the next strips, uh, strips 512 and 513, because they really seem to be playing Terrell as everything Clark Kent is not. He's got the same kind of gutsy nerve that Lois did with sneaking in, you know, sneaking around the cops to get into the plant. Later, he dives into the the reservoir to save the engineer. It's just really interesting. It's too bad that he ended up being the bad guy at the end of the story because I wouldn't have minded him actually sticking around and playing a foil for Clark as Lois's, uh, as far as Lois's romantic interests go, especially since they haven't quite gotten to the classic Superman Lois Clark uh, love triangle yet, though it's it's definitely shaping up. But also in Chip Five Thirteen. Clark slips into the alley to change to Superman, and we get a great shot. He's pulling off his shirt in the classic shirt-rip pose, which, to my recollection, is the very first time we've seen that specific pose. There have been a lot of shots of him changing clothes, 
but the iconic shot of of you know his uh, shirt spread wide open revealing the S, I don't remember ever seeing that to this point. So another staple of the Superman uh, mythology, I guess you might call it, can be added to the list. Also on a nearby trash can, we see Clark's fedora and glasses. I've talked before about how much I like it when the artists remember those little details. When we're reading strips where the art teams don't always remember uh, to keep the S consistent from story to story or don't don't always even remember to put the thing on his chest, that they remember to keep track of Clark's glasses when he changes is pretty remarkable. Strip 514, here is where Lois is in the burning building and gets grabbed by the hooded man. Unfortunately, it's pretty obvious with this scene that Terrell was the bad guy, or at least tied in with it somehow. They're in the burning building, and and they even point out that Terrell has disappeared. And then the robe guy shows up. So, So I would think that even the kids reading it at the time had to be able to guess that the robe guy was Terrell at this point. But maybe not. I don't know. Strip 515, we get a great shot of Superman in mid-leap, arcing above the plant. It's just a beautiful shot. Strip 516, Superman trips as he's running in to save Lois, which is dumb. This would have been a Saturday strip, so they were no doubt just trying to ramp up the cliffhanger for the weekend. I can't completely blame them for that, because I understand the reasons for doing it, but... Superman tripping over his feet? I mean, what is this? Three's Company? Um, Jumping to strip 518, there's another great shot of Superman soaring above the plant with Lois and Terrell in his arms. I'm telling you, the art in this whole story is just beautiful. Strip 519, the final panel on this strip is, again, a shot of Clark changing his clothes. But it's not quite the iconic shirt rip like we got earlier. Just a little closer to the typical... Uh, changing clothes shots from previous storylines. Strips 520 to 529. This is the whole scene at the water plant. So not a whole lot to say about it, except at the very end. Casey, Clark, Lois, and Terrell go to see the chief engineer about what happened. And Lois explains that Superman fixed the pumps. And Casey looks at the engineer and says, How did those pumps become reversed in the first place? And without missing a beat, this guy just freaks out and runs, ultimately jumping off the dam and killing himself. I don't really understand why this guy had to die, or why he had to be responsible for the pumps, or why he got so freaked out after just being asked one question. I mean, he talks about his quote-unquote mission, so we're obviously to assume that he was working for or with Terrell, but why did it have to be that way? I mean, it's not a story killer for me, but as I'll talk more about later, they don't really do much explaining about Terrell's objectives or how big his operation is or, or why any of this stuff is going on. So it's just all a little odd. Strips 530 to 534. So then we move on to the restaurant scene. And this seems to be another story where Superman is bounding from one thing to the other. Um, The upside is, this one actually feels planned, in that they all actually relate to the story at hand, instead of being completely random and unrelated. 
you know, here we have problems with the city power plant, the waterworks, and now the gas lines. All city utilities, all messed with by the same guy or, or group. But again, not much to say about this scene in particular. It's it's fairly routine and, and not much stand out for good or, or for bad about it. Two minor comments about the final strip in the scene. First, in the opening panel, and I've talked before about how they were using the S-Shield as a bit of decoration and space filler in the narrative boxes. Well, in the opening panel of this strip, there's an image of Superman running. And I'm not sure why they changed it in this strip, other than that the second panel uses a shield, but I like it. It's just a little bit of a variation. But the second comment is, in the final panel, Superman has leapt out of the building just as the police enter, and there's a bit of a, a trail and a sound effect of whish, indicating that he just left. And the first officer says, something just shot into the sky. And the second says, a bird? And the third finally says, Superman! Which I thought was a neat homage to the radio show. Siegel's been picking up a lot of the vernacular from the radio show. Um, a lot of Superman saying, this looks like a job for Superman. Or, this is where Superman comes in. Now, technically, he was doing it before the debut of the radio show, but it seems to have really picked up since the radio show premiered. Strip 535. So then Clark goes back to the Daily Planet again and finds that Lois has gone home because she was tired. Or at least that's what Taylor tells him. But I see no reason why Taylor would lie, so Lois must have gotten abducted as she left. But anyway, Clark heads out on a hunch. And I just love how he has these hunches about stuff that he has absolutely no reason to have hunches about. And this is really the biggest sticking point in the story for me. He follows Terrell on this hunch when we and Clark have been given no reasons that Terrell's intentions are anything but good. Other than the fact that from a reader standpoint it was kind of obvious. Strip 536. What comes over the next week's worth of strips though is pretty awesome. It's very action-packed. It's a pull-no-punches, knuckles-first, rough-and-tumble Superman that is so awesome in the Golden Age. This strip has a great shot of Superman running into frame and the sprawling city in front of him. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. Not, not anything like you'd expect in a Golden Age newspaper strip. There's just so much detail, and you get the scope of the city from the size of the people who are... They, they just look like ants because he's so high up. It's just a beautiful panel. Um, strip 537, there's a great moment and panel of Superman clocking three guys with one punch. Very awesome. Strip 538, the robed figure tells Superman to retreat, and Superman responds, Retreat? That word isn't in my vocabulary. And I can only imagine that between this strip and the next, he adds, But you know what is? Pummel. Um... Strips 539 and 540, then we get to the end of the story, which has a couple minor oddities, namely when Terrell had time to set up all these dummies dressed exactly like himself, and why he thought that was necessary in the first place. And then there's the weirdness that the bomb explodes, and, and the force from it is enough to knock Terrell out the window, but not to do anything to the dummies. 
but those are are really just fairly minor, and I can ignore them as they aren't things that necessarily came immediately to mind when I first read the story. It's really only because I'm picking them apart that I, I bring them up. But the bigger issue is that Terrell was revealed as the big bad, which, as I said, I guessed from very early on, so not much of a surprise there. And I'm not really sure why it was important to reveal the man we thought was Terrell wasn't really Terrell. Why is that important other than to add another layer of nondescript evil to the evil guy? I don't know. Overall, this one was... okay? (laughs) I mean, it was far better than the last couple. There were no huge gaffes and no silly plot elements like Superman defeating the villains with flour. But there just didn't seem to be much spectacular about this one. It was fairly solid. I think I would have preferred a bit more explanation about what Terrell was after and his motivations and and how many people he was working with, you know, that kind of thing. The most we get is the real Terrell saying, by wrecking utilities, he hoped the sick and weak would die, making civilization return to a simpler way of living. Okay, so I guess that's a goal and a motive, but how they correlate to one another is is pretty vague. But still, maybe it's just because the last couple were so terrible, but this was okay, I guess. Maybe it's the start of an upswing for the strip again. I, I, we'll, we'll see next story, I guess. Uh, as I mentioned, the art was fantastic, though. Like with the last few storylines, Boring and Commissaro did a stellar job. They are really gelling together at this point, and they've been great since the beginning, but it's actually gotten better as they've worked together on more and more strips. Superman is muscled and barrel-chested, but still within that vague realm of realism. Um, The S on his chest and his cape is big and bold. It's slightly stylized, but not to the degree it is in modern times. You know, basically all the stuff I've talked about in previous uh, collaborations, but it just feels like they really kicked it up a notch, or, or that they're they're really kicking it up a notch, I guess I should say. Lois is actually starting to look better too, um, a bit more. I'm not really sure how to describe it. Beautiful isn't really the right word, but maybe attractive. Her features just seem a little softer. Uh, her hair is different, and she she just looks really good. And as far as the actual uh, structure of the of the strips themselves, panel composition and even Superman's posing and body language are all very dynamic. Unlike last time, we don't have any weird shots that actually counter what's being said in the strip. So yeah, maybe a meh on the story, but all around a fantastic job on the art. I'm really, really digging the boring Commissaro team at this point. And even though I know there are other artists coming down the road that I like as much, if not more, I think I'm going to miss what Boring and Commissaro have brought to the strip when they, or when Commissaro uh, eventually moves on. If you want to read this and check out the art, it's available in the second volume of Dailies from Kitchen Sink, and that is sadly it.
In January 1937, President Franklin Roosevelt realized the world faced the greatest threat it has ever known, so he sent out a message. Get me H. Kelroy! Soldier of fortune and all-around adventurer Ace Kilroy set off on his first mission to head to Transylvania and stop the Nazis from turning Count Dracula and his vampire slaves into pawns of the Third Reich. While in Transylvania, Ace Kilroy learned that vampires are real and narrowly escape danger and death at every turn. Ace had to form an uneasy partnership with the Prince of Darkness in order to stop the Nazis' plan. And while they were successful, it ended with Ace swearing that someday he will find Dracula again and wipe him off the face of the Earth. Ace has now returned to America for a well-deserved vacation, but he won't get to rest up for long. FDR has given him a new assignment, this time involving Frankenstein's monster. Ace Kilroy, the online daily comic strip, was launched on Halloween night in 2011 and has featured a new black and white strip every day with an extra large color supplement on Sundays. The co-creation of writer-artists Rob Kelly and Dan O'Connor, Ace Kilroy quickly gained notoriety and rave reviews from such critics as The Onion AV Club, Robot 6, and Geekadelphia. With Ace about to head off on another dangerous mission, he needs your help. Via Kickstarter, pledge a donation to the Ace Kilroy fundraising campaign and help ensure Ace can continue in his fight against evil. There you can sign up to be a member of Ace's Allies, receive special limited edition Ace Kilroy merchandise, original art, and be among the first to receive Ace Kilroy Volume 1, featuring the complete story arc, plus unseen bonus art and behind-the-scenes material. Follow Ace Kilroy every day on acekilroy.com. Superman, a name known throughout the world to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? The men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. April 14, 1914, Donald Commissaro studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. His professional illustration career seems to have begun soon afterward, as he began drawing single-panel newspaper cartoons, including All for Lovely Woman's Sake and Dreamy Eyes in the mid to late 1930s. During this time, he also briefly assisted artist Rayburn Van Buren on the Al Cap-written newspaper strip Abbey in Slats, and assisted for art on various other strips for King Features. In 1940, Commissaro began working with the Joe Schuster Studio. 
while he is credited with inking a couple Superman comic book stories, as well as doing art for non-Superman tech stories, Commissaro's primary contribution to the Man of Steel seems to have been in the daily and Sunday newspaper strips. There, he inked stories, most of which were penciled by Wayne Boring, for approximately nine months, from mid-1940 through February or March 1941. In 1943, Commissaro illustrated a newspaper strip adaptation of the then-recently-released book 30 Seconds Over Tokyo by Ted W. Lawson, a story which was made into an MGM film starring Spencer Tracy, Van Johnson, and future Martha Kent actress Phyllis Saxter the following year. The strip was used as a promotional tool for the Book of the Month Club and ran through King Features. As World War II progressed, Commissaro seems to have shifted his focus to more advertising-related endeavors. Sometime in the early to mid-1940s, he began a partnership with fellow artist Lou Fine. They first worked together at the Johnstone and Cushing Art Agency in New York, before splitting off to work independently, as well as with the J. Walter Thompson Agency. In addition to handling most of the inking over Fine's layouts, Commissaro doubled as an agent for the pair, and garnered a long list of clients, including Philip Morris, Pepsi, General Foods, RKO Pictures, Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, and Tony Home Perms. With these clients, they illustrated artwork and advertisements, and created promotional comic strips for notable characters and advertising icons, including Sam Spade for Wild Root Cream Oil, Lucille Ball, Charlie McCarthy and Mr. Coffee Nerves for Chase and Sanborn Coffee, and a series of What Sparks a Champion sports-themed ads for General Foods. Despite doing volumes of work in advertising arenas, Commissaro and Fine kept their hand in some newspaper strip continuities as well. Around 1943, Commissaro inked over Fine's layouts, producing art for Will Eisner's The Spirit, while Eisner himself was serving in the Army overseas, having been drafted during World War II. Together, Commissaro and Fine also illustrated or, according to some sources, created a strip called The Throp Family. Signed under the joint pen name of Don Lou, the strip ran in the pages of Liberty Magazine and was scripted by Lawrence Lariar. The Throp Family ran from 1945 until at least early 1947. Around this same time, in the last half of the 1940s, Commissaro and Fine allegedly produced art for another strip called Taylor Woe, though samples from their time on the strip seem to have been lost to history. The partnership between Commissaro and Fine dissolved sometime in the early 1950s, but Commissaro continued producing artwork on his own. He established a studio in the Salmon Tower Building on West 42nd Street in Manhattan, just a few blocks away from the then-current offices of DC Comics. From there, he did a variety of advertising and comic strip work, including a religious comic strip distributed by King Features that retold biblical stories such as the tales of Noah and Jacob. Details about Commissaro's life past this time are sparse, unfortunately. However, by the mid-1960s, he seems to have added book illustration to his resume, illustrating children's books including Herman the Termite by William R. Sickles and Captain Whopper by Albert G. Miller. Don Commissaro died in Nassau, New York on March 14, 2000, at the age of 86. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. 
you know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. Got me dying of those powerful cuts on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord. Until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots. King of Kings, Master of Men. And Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast, ffcast.libsyn.com Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. We were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Green Lantern's Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. 
Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. Like every episode, I want to thank you all very much for joining me. Don't forget, there will be a second episode this week. It'll be out on Friday as we once more turn our attention to the radio for a very special treat. There's no homework, but I think you'll like it. And then in the episode after that, we'll finally be looking at that long-running story from the Sunday Strip. So, lots of stuff to be excited about. At least I think so. Either way, please remember the website, which you can find at greatcrypton.com. At the site, you will find all kinds of awesome stuff, including the show's RSS feed and the iTunes link, so that you can subscribe and never miss an episode. You'll also find links to the show's Facebook page and the Twitter feed. Like the show on either site and get updates. If you have feedback, questions, comments, or just want to say hello, you can give me a shout on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and let me know your thoughts. Let's not forget about the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. Two episodes of the show, not enough to satiate your Man of Steel needs? Well then, thank God for the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. And I also want to invite you to check out my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. That is a show where we are looking at the Bronze Age and now post-crisis Green Lantern comics. So, very fun and very exciting, and I I really want to encourage you to check it out. But that's it for this episode. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later this week. Goodbye. Knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Where the kisses are hers and hers and his. Three's company too. Come and dance on our floor. Come and dance on our floor. Take a step that is new. Take a step that is new. We've a lovable space that needs your face. Three's company too. You'll see that life is a ball again. Laughter is calling for you. Down at our rendezvous, down at our rendezvous, three is company two.
Caramel Food.